The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. Views Room co-host Anthony Curry will be joining me later in the show as we discuss the London Stock Exchange's $27 billion deal for Refinitiv. You'll want to stick around as we dive into whether the financial data provider's majority owner, Blackstone, or its partner, Breaking Views parent, Thomson Reuters, has gotten the better end of the deal. We kick it off, though, with the Trump administration's decision to brand China a currency manipulator. It's the latest attack in the trade war between the two countries started by the U.S. president, a conflict driven, as our columnists explain, by miscommunication and unrealistic expectations on both sides. This is Gina Chan from Breaking Views West Coast office in San Francisco. I'm talking to my colleague Pete Sweeney out in Hong Kong after what's been a big week on the U.S.-China trade and currency front. So we're going to try to unpack um, all the various uh, drama that occurred over the last week. Uh, So, Pete, um, I wanted to first start out with the trade tensions themselves. They've obviously been building, uh, but they've also tried to step back at times uh, with each time coming out of a Donald Trump Xi Jinping meeting, um, the last one which occurred um, earlier this year. And they seem to have come to a truce, but then tensions have bubbled up again with Trump uh, imposing or threatening to impose tariffs on uh, $300 billion in in Chinese goods by September 1st. Um, What is going on there after it seemed like they were actually trying to make nice-nice with each other? Yeah, well, I think both sides had uh, unrealistic expectations of what would count as a truce for the other people, and this miscommunication has just been dragging on. I mean, but I mean, it's not just the trade truce ended, but it ended in, in one of the ugliest ways it possibly could, right? I mean, the, the United States has now formally labeled China a currency manipulator, which um, is this aggressive step, um, you know, right after the, the talks in Shanghai kind of ended without any any conclusion. Um, apparently, Trump and his administration is quite upset that, uh, that China declined to purchase more agricultural commodities from the states, um, that that wasn't offered as kind of like a, I don't know, a nice gesture and so they retaliated um well and, and and then china of course let its well it depends on how you you interpret what happened but the the renminbi the exchange rate softened against the dollar across this critical line of seven it had been trading at like 6.9 and it's now softened below this line seven against the dollar that that people had been seeing china as defending to kind of keep the renminbi strong to a, a, a kind of fight against criticisms that it was depreciating the currency rate. So that line is crossed. Um, markets have all reacted. Um, the U.S. came through and called it a currency manipulator. China has canceled purchases of U.S. agricultural products. The whole thing is just this big hot mess right now. Um, and you tell me, <laughs> but I, I don't see an easy way for them to get back on the table. Like, this just seems to be descending into the abyss at this rate. Yeah, no, I, it's it's hard to see how they come down from this uh, because, uh, I'm, at least with Trump, I just feel like he's sort of boxed himself into a corner where he keeps thinking if he keeps applying pressure that China's going to come around like all these other countries have and cave eventually. And when that doesn't happen, then he ratchets up pressure 
you know, even more thinking again, at some point they're going to cave and it's just this vicious cycle. Um, what is the reaction in China been, uh, w- you know, waking up to this news that now they are labeled this currency manipulator, a label they haven't had since 1994? Well, I mean, it's another case of the Trump administration fighting a battle that was kind of lost a while ago, right? I mean, China definitely used yeah. to manipulate its <laughs> currency to keep it soft. Um, I mean, there's no question about that up until 2013 or so. Um, but now, like, China has been, when China's been intervening, it's mostly been to keep the currency strong. And the Chinese economy is very different. It doesn't just run on exports anymore. Just having a cheap renminbi, a cheap yen, as it's, it's informally called, um, is not a solution to all of China's economic problems. I mean, you know, the export sector export of goods and services like 20% of nominal GDP, but it's like nothing, it's negative or very little contribution to GDP growth. That's coming from domestic consumption, right? So, I mean, China imports a massive amount of stuff too. It imports energy, it imports, you know, uh, oil and, and all sorts of components, you know, they're denominated in dollars. So, you know, uh, it, it doesn't want you know, a, an extremely soft currency. It wants it stable. It also has to worry about capital flight. Last time it had this big rundown in the end when the dollar rallied back in 2014. I mean, that blew a lot of stuffing out of the out of the yen, and the the central bank had to run down its forex reserves by one trillion dollars um, to kind of stem the outflows. So, like, for the U.S. to come out and say, "Oh, you're manipulating your currency," is like half correct because they are sort of, but they're doing it in the opposite way to like keep it strong. So the whole thing has this kind of element of economic literacy that we've seen in other aspects <laughs> of the Trump administration's communication. That said, it yes. to a certain extent doesn't matter. I mean, this is just like them hitting each other. I mean, like it China mm-hmm. is short on arable land, you know, it needs American farm produce. It's got already a serious problem with its its consumer food prices. It's got this swine flu it got hasn't gotten control of. It's got armyworm hitting its fruit. Um, you know, on both sides, we're now having this this inflationary pressure hitting, you know, ugly inflation hitting like food prices that impact poor people. Um, you know, I know that prices are look like on, on trade impacted goods are starting to come up in the states apparently. Um, so mm-hmm. we're now starting to see the economic downside of this for ordinary people coming through, and yet these two guys can't seem to get along. I mean, for for Beijing's purpose, they also bear a share of the blame. Like they seem to have convinced themselves that the only person in the United States that matters like Trump and his family. And if you can, if you can give Trump, you know, some soybean purchases and he's happy, the problem will go away. Well, of course it's not, you know, Trump behind Trump are all these hawks, Lighthizer, you know, and, and some of them have, have more substantial economic criticisms than others. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is there's this consensus in the States that you're not going to buy, you know, with like a one-off purchase of farm products. <laughs> Um, and yet China seems to think that that was going to be it, that like if you can please the farm lobby and make some openings for Wall Street, you know, that's going to ease tensions and it just n- not and it never was going to. Um, so so I think there's blame to go on both sides. But the fact of the matter is that ordinary people are starting to lose um, and, and we'll see where that ends up. Yeah. So do you think that could um, start to influence the decisions made by these government leaders? I mean, Trump uh, put a timeline of September 1st for these new tariffs to possibly go into place, but we're hearing from uh, some of his advisors today, including uh, economic advisor Larry Kudlow, that there is time for this to uh, calm down, that uh, 
they the two sides are supposed to meet again you know later in September and so there is some um some time to possibly come back to the table have cooler heads prevail uh but again with the currency manipulator label even if it's you know largely symbolic um I don't know if that's possible you know at this point they've implemented all the tariffs what else are they going to do I mean like <laughs> yeah exactly like I mean all the all, all the, the most of the that ammunition has been fired but certainly the U.S., I mean, Huawei is still in play. I mean, the United States still has all these weapons. Um, and the Chinese economy is fundamentally in rickettier shape than the American economy. So that's one one fact that, that is, um, you know, I mean, the Chinese economy's problems are not all caused by terrorists by, by far. But, I mean, it's a developing country. It's got this big reservoir of, of, of poverty in the, in the interior. It's got a big debt pile. It's got a, a kind of a twisted economic model. Um, I mean, both sides have every reason to kind of come to some sort of agreement, but like just my personal opinion, the whole conversation has been about the wrong things on both sides. Like Trump is worried about the deficit, the trade deficit, which is not the fundamental source of, of tensions with, you know, with, with China and, and, and China is just kind of trying to I don't, come up with something cheap that, that means that doesn't address these structural issues that are problems for its own economy as well. Um, you know, the state-directed model and, and import substitution, you know, these are not solutions to, to, that are going to drive China in the next, the next wave of growth. Um, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be what people are talking about, and they're just going to be arresting, you know, executives and, 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 and uh, like, you know, this, this sort of <laughs> Ratcheting things going, up even further. Yeah. You know, just beating yeah. each other up as hard as possible. You can cause a lot of pain, but you don't get anywhere. Yeah, no, exactly. I know. Um, it's but I mean, there's some people in the administration, I think, who want a horrible new, new, new normal. I mean, and in China as well. Like these factions, you know, that see each other as enemies, this is serving this. Like this, this, this degrading of tensions is, of relations is what they want. In, in, the United, in China, there's lots of people who've grown up seeing the United States as this giant, selfish, strategic, um, you know, hegemon you know, that is going to resist China no matter what, you know. So, like, what the U.S. is doing now is just confirming what they always believed in the first place. You know, and obviously for, for the Hawks and the Trump administration, they want to they position China as an enemy and the way things are working out, that's it's it just gets uglier and uglier. So it's serving them, but I don't think it's the common good. Yeah. Well, and uh, is there a sense uh, from the Chinese side that... Um, they are sort of looking at the 2020 election as some sort of point to, you know, play around with in terms of trying to gauge, <laughs> you know, how fast. Or I mean, I don't know. They, they don't. They haven't this. informed me. Well, certainly the agricultural strategy yeah. <laughs> would suggest that that's that they have they are they are no longer as amused by Trump as they used to be, um, and they would mm. probably prefer regime change. So that's interesting. Um, you know, so that, and they, they clearly seem to be savvy to the subtleties of the electoral system in the States because, you know, I mean, agriculture isn't like, like most Americans aren't farmers, right? Most voters aren't. But, yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the tragedy is that we expect, we were hoping on this side, at least for like this re-energized reform factor, sec, um, faction in China, which has been kind of been backseated by, by President Xi Jinping. And, and that hasn't happened. Instead, like the hardliners have been more empowered by, by U.S. strategy than the people who want to liberalize the Chinese economy. Um, you know, so now they're going to try and unseat Trump and try and get a better deal with, with the Democrats. I, I think that's a fairly long shot myself, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. It doesn't seem to be like the Democrats are particularly uh, pro-China either. 
Yeah, they're actually worse in, in terms of wanting to be tough. I mean, uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had been salivating over, you know, China being labeled a currency manipulator for years. So I'm sure he was, you know, jumping up and down when Treasury came out with its announcement. Uh, so in a weird way, on, on this one issue, he's probably more in line with the Democrats, including some of his opponents on the campaign trail. Um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and others um, uh, are actually on the same page with him when it comes to the tariffs and and other issues. So uh, I think China can expect that to continue or even get worse because it might actually be under more kind of rational decision-making procedures but that it's even uh, tougher in some ways. Indeed. So, um, good. yeah, so I think for both of us, we're, we're both feeling a bit uh, pessimistic on where things go from here, but um, I'm sure both of us will be following it closely uh, because we can't avoid it in any case. So um, look forward to the next time we can connect and see what, uh, what the next drama is going to be and who's going to you know throw the next bomb on the other side. There's more to come, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Pete. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Jim. Okay, thanks, guys. Well, now we've sorted out the trade war for you. We're going to tackle the big M&A deal of the week. The London Stock Exchange Group has agreed to buy Refinitiv for $27 billion. That means the financial data provider is worth 35% more than when private equity firm Blackstone bought a majority stake less than a year ago. So we have Breaking Views Europe editor Peter Tal Larsen joining us from London to explain what's driving the LSE's bid. What's in it for Refinitiv and whether Blackstone or Thomson Reuters is getting the better end of the partnership so far? Peter, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with this. This this was a surprise announcement for for most people, not just those of us who work within the Thomson Reuters empire. I mean, this is just 10 months less than that after uh, Blackstone finalised its its takeover of basic control of Refinitiv. What's driving this deal? Yeah, I think it is a surprise. Um, I don't think necessarily the deal itself was a surprise, but what was surprising about it was the timing. Um, when so when Black, if you rewind a bit and say, well, when Thomson Reuters sold a majority stake in its financial and risk business to uh, Blackstone, uh, the deal was announced beginning of 2018 and then closed in October 2018. I think the expectation was that at some point, once Blackstone had worked its magic on that business, that then one of the natural buyers for that business might be a big listed exchange company. Um, but what surprised people is that it's happened, as you said, so quickly. Um, and uh, and really, I mean, it's down to a couple of things. One of the things that's happened is that the London Stock Exchange, which has a new CEO, he's been in the job almost exactly a year, uh, has seen its its equity value rise very rapidly. I think its its value has risen 25% uh, since the the Refinitiv deal that the, the Thomson Reuters sale to Blackstone closed in October last year. And so what that means is that the um, the London Stock Exchange was able to be the buyer of this business because it just had very highly valued equity that it could use to to, to make this transaction. Is that sustainable, though? I mean, it, uh, that's a, a big increase over a short period of time 
for a business that's, you know, at the moment stuck in uh, with a lot of Brexit risk. Have other exchanges performed that well? Or is there something specific that, that uh, under Chief Executive David Schrimmer, the exchange has done or that was already sort of percolating before he took over that's got it to do so well? I think it's. I think a lot of it is 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 stuff that was already done beforehand. I mean, the, one of the interesting things to bear in mind about the London Stock Exchange is that despite its name, the stock exchange part of the business is actually quite small these days. Um, most of its value and most of its revenue comes from two businesses. One is clearing trades, so um, clearing right. equity trades, derivative trades, etc. Um, that's a huge business for them. That is a business that's been affected by uh, Brexit uncertainty, but they've managed to sort of resolve that uncertainty for now. So um, I think people are reassured about that. That's one of the reasons the value has gone up. And the other business they have is is a business called FTSE Russell, which basically puts together stock indices. And that's been a huge growth business, partly because of the growth of passive investing. People want different types of indices to track. And so, but both those businesses, they've grown a lot in the past few years. I think the expectation was that maybe growth might be a bit more constrained in the future. And what this allows the London Stock Exchange to do is essentially diversify into this whole area of data and analysis and manipulation of data on, on, on financial markets. And that's really where the big growth opportunity is. Okay. Yeah. So, Peter, um, it, the timing is uh, very quick because it seems like private equity tends to hold um, companies that they buy for, what, basically about five years. So what does this mean for Blackstone? What, what, how does this work for them? Well, I think, on the, I mean, the first thing that happens is that they're, they're getting, at least on paper, they're getting a very good return on their investment. So the thing you've got to bear in mind is that the, the, the value of the deal back in October last year was $20 billion. Um, but actually... Uh, Blackstone and its partners, um, uh, including Thomson Reuters, if you value the sort of Thomson Reuters equity that they kept in the business, um, was about seven and a half billion dollars of that. So the rest of it is debt. Um, and if you so then if you if you wind the clock forward and say, well, now the London Stock Exchange is basically paying twenty seven billion dollars for the whole business, the debt is still roughly twelve and a half billion dollars. So now the equity is worth give or take 15 billion. So Blackstone and, and, and company are essentially doubling their money in 10 months, which is a pretty lucrative thing to do and, and yeah. take some of the risk off the table for them. However, I think it's important to point out that they're not getting that cash now. Um, they're getting stock in the London Stock Exchange, which they won't be able to even begin selling until two years after the deal closes. And the expectation is this deal is going to take a year to close. So actually, once you bear in mind that, you know, the, the, the point at which they will be able to have fully sold their shares um, will basically be five years after their initial investment. So actually, the holding period will be roughly the same as it would be for a normal deal. It's just that they've kind of flipped their their stake into the London Stock Exchange stake and then held on to that for a while and then they'll be able to sell it. OK, so let me ask you a hypothetical question here. So why? didn't Thomson Reuters then, it kind of begs the question, you know, wait and sell directly to LSE or look for somebody else? I mean, does this make Thomson Reuters look like uh, a laggard in this deal? The first thing is, as I mentioned earlier, the London Stock Exchange was not in a position to pay $27 billion for this business a year ago, um, okay. uh, which is when, you know, or a year and a half ago, which is when uh, uh, Thomson Reuters announced the sale to Blackstone. Um, it just it didn't have the the equity value to do that. Um, 
The other thing, obviously, is that uh, they were able to put a lot of debt on this business, which is something that Thomson Reuters would not have been able to do as a listed company by itself. Um, and then also, obviously, Blackstone, I think we have to assume that, that you know, there's been a fair amount of restructuring and cost cutting that's gone on within the business now known as Refinitiv uh, since Blackstone uh, got the keys in October last year. So they've probably also, I mean, they're talking about taking out $650 million of costs by the end of 2020. They reckon they're already roughly halfway through that. So there's been quite a lot of aggressive cost cutting that, again, Mm -hmm. I think would have been harder for Thomson Reuters to do as a publicly listed company. It's also worth remembering that um, as a result of raising that debt last year for the, the Blackstone transaction, most virtually all that money went to Thomson Reuters. So Thomson Reuters managed to get a large chunk of cash, or well, 17 billion, was it? I, f- I forget the exact number when that deal was closed. But also, as, as our colleague John Foley has written about um, Peter, and you work with him on this piece, um, there was a wrinkle in the in some of the way the deal was structured last year, which actually, at the moment at least, seems to have worked more in Thomson Reuters' favour than Blackstone. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, well, I mean, it most definitely has worked in Thomson Reuters' favour. So this is interesting because obviously we tend to think of Blackstone as the smart, leveraged private equity guys, um, you know, who kind of uh, uh, extract value that uh, these, you know, kind of uh, big companies didn't necessarily spot. But in this case, actually, when when this deal was put together, you've got to bear in mind, so Blackstone and, and its partners, it had a couple of uh, large pension funds, which basically co-invested alongside it. Um, they bought 55% of the equity uh, of this business, and Thomson Reuters hung on to 45%. But as part of this deal, Blackstone also put in basically some downside protection. Was It, it had a billion dollars worth of preferred shares, and those preferred shares um, kind of had a, had a very hefty uh, coupon attached to them. I think it was 14.5%, um, which kind of built up over the years. And so, and the way that that worked then is that if the value of uh, Refinitiv didn't increase by very much, then Blackstone would actually do better than Thomson Reuters. But there are also some provisions built into the deal whereby if the value of the business went up a lot, then Thomson Reuters actually got a slightly bigger share of the company um, as, as its value increased. And so because this is such a great deal in such a short period of time um, for Refinitiv, that's Thomson Reuters is actually, that's triggered this provision which means they have a slightly better, uh, bigger stake in the company than they would have done otherwise. And if you kind of, if you look at then in terms of as a, the, the, what's coming out or, or the value of the equity they're getting as a multiple of what they're getting, they're putting in, Blackstone and its partners are getting roughly twice what they put in. But Thomson Reuters is actually getting almost three times what it put in. Okay, so this all sounds great, but uh, Peter, there must be some risks to this deal. Oh, most definitely. I mean, there's there's uh, there's a number of risks. I mean, I think um, the first risk actually is is that the deal doesn't happen, um, and the reason for that would be not because someone else tries to buy Refinitiv, because I think that's um, essentially uh, a done deal. But the most immediate risk is that one of the other big exchange companies decides that this is their last opportunity to buy the London Stock Exchange before it basically doubles in size. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some amazing statistic, uh, which I think is, is uh, um, 
uh, some analysts in London came up with, they said the London Stock Exchange has been on the receiving end of a takeover bid on average every two and a half years for something like the last <laughs> two decades. Um, so That's been, amazing. Um, and so, you know, there are big exchange companies, think of Intercontinental Exchange, think of CME Group, um, who, who might, who, who've coveted the, the London Stock Exchange over the years and never quite managed to make a deal happen. And so they might look at this and say, well, this is our last opportunity to pounce Let's uh, let's let's make a bid here. That's the first risk. The second risk is um, is that the competition authorities get involved. It's not obvious that there's a competition problem uh, between the London Stock Exchange and Refinitiv, but there is some consolidation there in terms of the the access to market data, which may be an issue, and and the competition authorities may demand some remedies, which then make it less attractive. Um, and then the third thing is Brexit. I mean, you know, the London Stock Exchange is still quite heavily exposed to the UK. Um, the UK is obviously careering towards a, a potentially a no-deal Brexit chaotic exit from the EU at the end of October. Um, they think that they've kind of put in place all the sort of cushions and, and buffers that they need to to to, to get through that. Um, but you know, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that something happens that um, that gets in the way here. All right, well, Peter, thanks for talking us through that. A very involved, somewhat complicated deal. I think you've, you've made it uh, very easy to understand. So thanks for that. And thanks for coming back on the show. We'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, guys. That wraps it up for this week. Many thanks to Gina Chan, Pete Sweeney, and Peter Tell Larson for coming on the show. We are indebted, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Ross Shoulder. And we extend our gratitude to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please check us out at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you snag your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.